Hi, Pacers fans. Welcome into another Sideline Guys Wednesday. I want to preface everything that we're about to say by saying uh, you and I, JJ, recorded a podcast here on Wednesday morning. And then just a little bit after we got done recording the news that the Pacers were uh, not retaining, Nate McMillan came out. So we wanted to come back, record um, a little beginning to this podcast, and then also uh, have it known that the rest of this podcast, while I think in general our feelings haven't really changed, at least was recorded um, before this Nate McMillan news came out, but we thought it was important uh, to at least have a chance uh, to discuss it. The Pacers announcing, quote, on behalf of the Simon family and Pacers organization, I'd like to thank Nate McMillan for his years with the team, uh, said Pacers president of basketball operations, Kevin Pritchard. This is a very hard decision for us to make, but we feel it's in the best interest of the organization to move in a different direction. Nate and I have been through the good and the bad times, and it was an honor to work with him for those 11 years. And then there's also a note uh, that, of course, he was with Nate McMillan in Portland. The release then continues to go on to list uh, the postseason record and Nate's record uh, as a head coach with the Pacers. And I think the thing, J.J., I take away from this the most and first and foremost is the understanding that we have not talked to Kevin Pritchard and we do not know, um, you know, exactly what went on behind the scenes. We don't know at all what went on behind the scenes. But what I what I take away from that and what I certainly believe is um, where he discusses that this is a difficult decision. Um, I think everybody that knew that knows Nate likes Nate um, and, you know, the Pacers were able to accomplish some impressive feats during the regular season. Um, yet back-to-back sweeps is certainly very frustrating. And I think sometimes people view a, a decision like this as too much cut and dry. And what I mean is there's a ton of nuance to a decision like this. It's not just because you know something like this happened doesn't mean it was a failure of a job by anybody. Um, these are difficult decisions to make. I feel like this was a difficult decision to make you know, without knowing firsthand what went on behind the scenes. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's Kevin Pritchard's job to put the team together and the coaching staff together that he feels gives the Pacers the best chance. And that's what he's doing here. Yeah, it's really difficult even right now to kind of come to a point of where what my thoughts are, or what I want to share about the situation, because there's a personal element to this. And there's also a professional one. And then there's sort of a long term future. Um, what's in the best interest of the franchise? And personally, um, I respect Nate McMillan. I appreciate everything he has done for the organization and for me personally to make my job, you know, both easy, but also I think uh, to do his, satisfy his obligations as the head coach of a franchise to represent the Pacers in a first-class manner and to also make this team successful. I think that that is one thing that Kevin Pritchard, I think, would, would acknowledge if we had him on this podcast right now how well he has gotten this team to perform as the head coach of the Pacers under challenging circumstances pretty much from day one. Um, And I I think that you should not forget about that. But then I think about something else that we're often um, told and and comes up in some of our, you know, staff meetings about competing for championships, you know, to to make a difference in the community and, and to compete for championships. And I think that after the last couple of playoffs, even without, you know, your best players, there was just a thought that maybe this team could have done a little bit more and, and maybe that Nate wasn't the coach to get this team to a championship level. It doesn't mean he's a bad coach and, and certainly is nothing about his personality. It's just a decision that in the front office of an NBA franchise, you have 
very, very difficult decisions to make. And this is one that I'm sure that has caused some sleepless nights in the last couple of nights. And we don't know, Pat, when, you know, this decision was made. Some are going to question why the news of an extension was announced a couple of weeks ago, but we also don't know everything that has happened behind the scenes either. So I think all we can do is thank Nate for what he has done, look back fondly on his time with the Pacers and and trust the, the front office and the franchise to make the best decision to help this team make the next step whenever the team is back on the court. No, I think that's, um, you know, extremely accurate and very well put. I, I think, you know, you and I went on to discuss a lot of, um, you know, the playoff series in the original taping of this podcast that's going to, you know, play in just a moment and, and what the Pacers have looking forward. And, um, you know, I, I really don't have a whole lot more to add, especially at this point. You know, um, I've personally decided to um, decline, you know, any radio interviews until Kevin Pritchard talks because I, you know, genuinely want to hear exactly what he has to say. And, and I'm sure he will say, you know, the things I'm confident that he will say are um, that this is a tough decision, that he respects Nate as a man and as a coach. And these decisions are never easy. You know, there is a human element to this. And Kevin Pritchard knows that because he's been on both sides of situations like this. And then he's had to be the one that makes this call. But, you know, ultimately, this is this is his and the front office's decision to make about what they feel is in the best direction of the future of the team. And it's not always uh, past results that can reflect that. And it's not always, you know, a simple decision of what happened last year determines, uh, you know, what can happen in the future. And I, you know, look at Nate McMillan's time, and I'm sure Kevin Pritchard does, as one um, where the Pacers had more obstacles in their way over the last few years than most, most coaches have had to deal with. The Paul George trade, you know, that came in year one of Nate McMillan being the head coach at the end of year one. And... The Pacers, you know, able to get to 48 and 34 and challenging the Cavaliers in the first round of the playoffs and then losing him in the second year, uh, or I guess it would be Nate's third year, losing him in Victor's second year in the playoffs. And everybody knows the injury challenges that the Pacers have dealt with this year. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it, it, multiple things can be true in this situation. I think Kevin Pritchard can probably feel like Nate McMillan did a very good job in the regular season and that the coaching staff overcame a ton of challenges and and probably will be I would guess uh, you know Kevin will be the first to tell you that they were saddled with some really difficult um, circumstances that are completely out of their control but those two things can be true and you can also feel like we need to change things up we need to move in a different direction for the betterment of the future of our franchise. And, you know, it, it's we talk about it later in the podcast, but you go back to back years with sweeps in the playoffs. And and even with the injuries, the, those are tough situations to have to move on and keep momentum from. And there's a lot that goes into these decisions. And, you know, frankly, as I was thinking about all this and, and what to say, it's a it's a good example of why people that are much smarter than you or I are making these decisions because they're so challenging. Um, they're, they, they're so tough. And, you know, ultimately they'll have a lot of weight on what the Pacers are able to do. And I don't want to go comparing this to any other situation at all, but you see stuff. Th this is not unprecedented by any means. You see things like this happen all the time. Um, you know, where Dwayne Casey, for example, did a great job in Toronto overall, but, 
they felt like there was a different coach to get them to the next step. And when Dwayne Casey was let go, he was coach of the year. But, you know, uh, Masai Ujiri felt like a change at this time could help the team make the next step. And they did make the next step. And I guess that's my ultimate takeaway is just both things can be true. You can be happy with a lot of the job that happened. You can respect the man. You can appreciate the man. And I want to share those same sentiments that you did, that Nate was always extremely professional and very much appreciated how um, he allowed us to do our jobs and was never um, in the way or an impediment for any of that. Um, but it can be true, you know, that you respect all those things and appreciate the work he did and even feel like he did a good job, but also feel like maybe there's somebody else that can take you to the next level. And I did want to offer another um, maybe mini commentary and maybe a little bit of frustration in terms of the last week or so when I scroll through Twitter. And I will admit that especially from March until August, probably spent more time scrolling through Twitter than, than I need to and maybe is healthy. And I do also follow probably more people than I need to as well. So I tend to get a lot of people that are Pacer fans that I, I, I love following, you know, Pacers fans, some of which I know as an avatar more than I know as a person. Um, but I kind of do like to keep an eye on the pulse of, um, you know, just kind of what people are thinking. And even if, you know, what if uh, they have a comment on the broadcast and they're not adding me, I'd like to, I'd like to be able to just kind of know what is being said. But with that being said, I did think it was a little, and I understand you work the whole season and then you work through a pandemic and you get to the point where you want to watch your team in the playoffs and you want to feel that sense of pride and you want to experience success. And I'm, I'm no different. I mean, I found myself in the last week saying I, I used to love playoff games and I, I don't know, I'm not enjoying the playoffs as much anymore because it wasn't as satisfying the last couple of seasons. However, can we get to a point where we do see the big picture of things and we don't as a society or as a fan base, just put all of the blame on the coach. I mean, I found myself watching um, the Mavericks game or actually, no, the, we were actually texting the, the nuggets and uh, jazz game. And, you know, there were some good sets called, there was some good offense. And then there was just some amazing individual efforts that were isolation plays, plays that fans were freaking out about. Um, during the Pacers series, and Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell were just making incredible plays while four guys were standing there. I didn't hear anybody say that was bad offense. And so uh, I don't I didn't mean to go down a rabbit hole. This is what I think the time right now is. If you're a Pacers fan and you've enjoyed watching this team for the last four or five years, even before, as Nate was an assistant prior to that, tip your cap to him. Show him some appreciation. Um, it's not fun for anyone to lose a job. Now there are staff members who are probably, you know, not sure what their future is as well in a very uncertain time. So this isn't easy on Kevin Pritchard. This isn't easy on the organization. Um, and it's not easy. It don't, don't be that person that takes this, you know, yes, finally, you know, things like that. Um, I just am asking that personally. And if you have to do that and that's the way you feel about things, that's fine. But, you know, moving forward, it is a team effort. And so if the Pacers experience success next season and they advance to the conference finals or the finals, it's not just going to be because a new coach came in, just like it wouldn't be just the coach's fault if they don't. Did all those players perform at the level they would have liked in that series against Miami and last year against Boston? I would say no. You know, there were some individual efforts and some really good games by certain players. But as a team, 
they didn't play the same way they did in the regular season. And you could go down a number of reasons why, and certainly coaching is a big factor in the playoffs. And so that's, that has to have gone into the decision-making process, I think a little bit. And it's a, it's a results-based business. And, and this organization is competing to win a championship. So that, that decision was made. Uh, I'm not sure what else I can add except to say, you know, I support the decision, but I also appreciate the work of Nate McMillan and the staff. And I do look forward to, to hearing what, what Kevin Pritchard has to say um, when he does speak. And that's my bottom line. Those two, those two points you just made at the very end there, they don't need to be mutually exclusive. And uh, I'm sure for Kevin Pritchard, I'm very confident that those two things are not mutually exclusive. But ultimately, you have to make a call on, you know, what's the best for the future of your franchise. And just as, you know, Larry Bird was making the comments a few years ago about how he thinks Frank's a good coach and has done a very good job, he felt like there was somebody um, that it was time to make a move and 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 select somebody else for the future of the franchise. And it didn't mean, uh, you know, necessarily that Frank didn't get the job done. And that's, you know, as, as head coaches, um, that's the world you sign up for. And it can be a very challenging world, obviously a very rewarding one. If you can get to the point of where Nate McMillan has gotten, and he's obviously a respected coach in this league. And there's few people that know Nate McMillan better than, than Kevin Pritchard. They worked together for a very long time and um, they already had an established relationship long before they came together um, in Indiana. And I think that's worth noting as well. Uh, let's move forward now to what I guess ends up being part two of this podcast. We go back in time a couple of hours before we knew this news, but uh, JJ and I took a look at the playoff series and where the Pacers stand from a roster standpoint and what we're looking forward to in the future. And then the other thing that I will add uh, here before we switch it over to the previous version of ourselves is, you know, we are going to, uh, likely at some point have a, a Kevin Pritchard press conference. And if, um, you know, there is information there where we feel like, um, you know, another podcast is necessary that um, we are certainly willing to do that. We don't exactly know what our podcast schedule is going to be uh, from here on out because we don't really even know the NBA schedule from here on out. Um, but as, as Kevin Pritchard potentially talks here in the near future and as we learn more information, if you know, you and I want to hop back on here and do a mini pod. I think uh, that's a possibility as well. So let's turn things over now to the rest of the podcast that we taped on Wednesday morning. Hi, Pacers fans. It's another Sideline Guys Wednesday alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. Unfortunately, it's not the Sideline Guys Wednesday. Uh, JJ, you and I were hoping for, we were hoping to be uh, previewing game five, hoping to look at a long series. And unfortunately, that just wasn't in the cards for the Pacers this go around. I know you and I have a lot of thoughts. I, I think I have maybe more conflicting thoughts right now than maybe I ever have at the end of a season because this season was just so unique. It was um, so like any other, unlike any other. Um, and unfortunately, you went into another playoff series missing one of your top couple of guys. And I think when you look at the equation of you don't have Victor Oladipo, um, then once again, uh, you don't, sorry, you don't have Victor Oladipo at 100%. Once again, you can make the case that your top player throughout the majority of the season was not there. I think back to uh, our conversation with Slick Leonard. And, and for those who didn't catch our radio coverage, we had Slick on. Uh, Slick was not part of the color commentary for the restart, but we had him on in the pregame, halftime, and postgame. He would call in and we would get his commentary. And I was, you know, a little struck as we were beginning game four 
just the kind of tone he brought because, you know, he has the rare mindset where we can look into of what it's like to be a former coach and specifically of the Pacers, even though it's been a long time. And, you know, his tone wasn't frustrated. It wasn't uh, he wasn't frustrated. He wasn't mad. He was almost more a little bit sad because I think he understands what it's like to miss a player like DeMontis Sabonis, like Victor Oladipo the previous year. And you don't ever feel like, you know, a sweep is a good result. And I know all the players and coaches are very frustrated um, by a sweep. And even without DeMontis Sabonis, you know, a sweep is not something, um, you know, that anyone would find successful. But I did um, feel like it was it was kind of an interesting um, look into the mind of Slick Leonard as he was just so uh, bummed for Nate, I think. Um, to not have Sabonis for another playoff series. I think, you know, we all realize how much we missed him and and maybe even more so as you watch that series unfold. Um, there's a lot to unpack, obviously, in a series like this, in a sweep, in a season where you felt like a lot of things went your way, even when they probably shouldn't have uh, in terms of, you know, you got all the way up to number four um, without Victor Oladipo for most of the year and with a ton of injuries. Yet here we are again, unfortunately, at the end of the season talking about a sweep. Yeah, we could kind of go back and, and listen to the tone of different podcasts from April, from May, from June. And, and let's think back to what we thought about maybe early May when there was a thought about there, there was going to be a bubble. And immediately you're asked, you know, which teams will perform best in Orlando? Which teams will have the best chance at success? And we kind of thought those that had really good chemistry and those that went into the hiatus playing well would have a good chance to come back and play well. And eight of 11 going into the break. So you thought the Pacers were one of those teams that if, if maybe this was the year that you could kind of make a long run and, and make a surprise upset and, you know, get past the first round and, and give the Bucks everything they, you know, wanted. And then you got to early July and, and first Victor Oladipo had, had said he wasn't going to play. Then he kind of, said he would test it out but then before he really said that yeah I'm in DeMontis Sabonis is out and so you know I'll be honest I at that point had just said well all of that optimism that we had it's kind of not realistic at this point and now you just need to be happy that they're going to play basketball and you hope they can stay safe and healthy and you know you see what happens and you enjoy the games for what they are because we miss them so much then you start six and you go six and two in the seeding games. And TJ Warren is one of the five best players in, in the bubble in the conclusion of the regular season. And you think, hey, maybe there's a chance. And then there's word that maybe Sabonis could come back at some point. And, and then you start to get that hope again. And so I think that's what's maybe the most difficult thing about all of this is that if you ask the average fans um, in the middle of July, you know, what do you think your chances are of playing in September? you would say, yeah, probably not likely, but, you know, we'll see what happens. And then you ask them, you know, second week of August, and you're like, wow, you know, there's no reason why you can't beat the Heat, although you haven't really done it yet this season. <laughs> no matter who was playing, Miami has just had your number. And I, I sometimes tend to think that it's a little bit of a cliche, even though that's probably not the right way to describe it, that a team is a bad matchup. Um, I always hear it talked about in the NCAA tournament and people try to, you know, pick their brackets and they just want to say, well, what's a good matchup? What's not a good matchup? I mean, sometimes a bad matchup is if you play bad against that team a couple of times, then it's automatically a bad matchup. 
But I do think there might be something to the way the Miami plays, at least as they are currently constructed, is a bad matchup for the Pacers. And so it's a long-winded way of saying I, too, have a lot of emotions. I, I was someone who, you know, went from great expectations to very low, you know, low ex- optimism and then back to high um, high chance of confidence. And now I, now that it's over, it does feel like many of the, the last few seasons that you're kind of empty and you're disappointed, but yet it's so very different because this has been like no season we've ever experienced. So I'm not sure what I said in that uh, opening dialogue there, other than every couple hours, I feel something differently and uh, I'm still a little kind of empty a little bit, but still thinking back to the month of August and I'm glad that it happened. I, I completely agree. And you know what, we can dive into this playoff series a little bit um, later because, you know, the overwhelming feeling still for me is I remember, uh, you know, everybody remembers late March, early April. I remember where I went to dinner the day uh, the NBA shut down and it was such a remarkable event and in a lot of ways, it was the event that really told the country that something serious is about to happen. And I remember, you know, barely leaving <laughs> where I live in April and the podcast where you and I would normally be wrapping up a regular season and previewing a playoff opponent went away for a little bit. And the time of the year that's typically the most involved and the most exciting with our jobs there was very little going on except for the massive amounts of uncertainty and the overwhelming worry that a season wouldn't happen. And even bigger than that, um, you know, a worry about the health of so many people, not just in the country, but globally and really through something that um, none of us have ever been alive through. And I remember those times so vividly wondering, is the NBA season ever even going to get back? Is, uh, you know, are we going to see the Pacers again, even in 2020? And so while the sweep is certainly disappointing, um, you know, especially when you go into a series with a team where you more or less had the same record as them during the regular season, even if you take that final game out of the picture, you have the same record as them. And so I don't mean to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, sweep that under the rug. But I think but also just getting back to basketball. I mean, the remarkable job. It's amazing how in like a few weeks time. We went from the narrative of even when we heard that, you know, a bubble would be happening and it would be going on in Florida and cases were rising in Florida. The narrative went from I don't think a lot of people thought I don't think the NBA can pull off this bubble uh, to, you know, how long have we been without a positive test? And, and it's now been seven weeks. Uh, you know, I think that they've been down there and there isn't even a positive test. And I think that's such a just unbelievable, remarkable storyline that not only did the season get back underway, not only did we get Pacers basketball and did we got to do our jobs and, and all of these other emotions um, of, you know, watching the Pacers come back and beat Philadelphia and everything TJ Warren did. And I, I think it's important that we don't um, overlook all of that too, because, you know, there were days where I would have said any Pacers basketball, even if it was <laughs> eight losses and a sweep in the playoffs, in a lot of ways would be a victory just getting this thing started back up. And, um, you know, I, I feel grateful that we had the opportunity. Um, at the same point, one thing that I think makes some of this so challenging is we did, you know, we, we got the podcast started back up. We were talking with guys like Darren Collison and then a lot of the team as they were quarantining. 
And, you know, we waited and waited and waited and then got back to do it. And it's remarkable just how quickly it came and went again, really just over three (laughs) weeks time. And so, you know, it felt like we waited for so long and it feels in some ways kind of cruel that, wow, it just feels like we were previewing the restart of the restart. And, um, you know, here we are with the season over again. And I I think that part to me, just personally, um, you know, we'll get into the playoff series and and what, you know, unfortunately went wrong for the Pacers. But I think that part for me personally has been a little tough because it was finally back after waiting four and a half months. And then almost three weeks later, um, you know, it's gone again. Yeah. With that being said, think of all of the people that spent time in April and May speculating, coming up with proposals and plans and saying, I think the NBA should do this. I think they should do this. If you think back at all of the options they had available, I'm not sure that they could have come up with a better one because even when it was announced that they would have 22 teams, I I saw this outcry of, you know, how do you invite the Phoenix Suns? What's Washington doing there? They should just start with the playoffs right away. And I thought that was so short-sighted because you have to consider Everything they are doing, there is a reason why they are doing it. And you know what? One of the reasons they were coming back and playing eight seeding games was to help the players get some of the money back that they were losing. And I don't think anyone seemed to understand that yet. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, the playoffs are all that matters. Now we just need to have playoff basketball. And then it was, you know, the numbers in Florida. And while I don't, I don't like sugarcoat that at all or gloss over it, the reason they were going to create a bubble was to keep things, keep the virus out. You could have probably put that anywhere, but the facilities and the infrastructure of Walt Disney World, second to none. So it wasn't great that it was in the middle of Florida when their numbers were rising and it was deemed unsafe, but you saw very few people saying it'll be okay. And it knock on wood, it hasn't been okay. So we, we tend to obviously <laughs> uh, give the NBA a lot of credit. And then, and then, you know, let's just hit on this right now. With the social justice movement, the league has done a really good job, in my opinion, of letting the players use their voices and to do the best they can to continue to raise awareness and, and try to speak to change, positive change. And, you know, there's been a step, step back, a setback in our country this past week. And so there's going to continue to be the opportunity. And, and you hope that, you know, that the messages are heard and we can seek change. I, I think that change there, there are some, you know, players that are discussing what they're going to do next. And I look forward to seeing how they can use their platform. So with everything that was going on and no one topic or no one issue is more important than the other, but I just think big picture um, it, it's what it's almost the exact best case scenario, just in terms of if you're going to come back and, and have this happen, how it did happen. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can even think of a single thing where if you would have given the scenario beforehand, if you would have talked about this in uh, May or June and you would have said, hey, here's the case. I remember I, uh, we took a, a week long vacation, drove out to Jersey and I was listening to Zach Lowe's podcast in late June. And even as, as late as late June, he was making the case of, look, I would totally understand if the NBA higher up said, let's just scrap the season and move on. I mean, that was his that was as far out as just a couple of weeks before, you know, they were leaving. And it's incredible how quickly not only this turned into a restart that actually did happen, um, but one that, uh, you know, so quickly people stopped talking about the virus. And at the same point, 
you know, the players have been able to, the the uh, teams, the players, the everybody on site who has wanted to, I feel like has been able to keep their message as it relates to social justice very much in the forefront of what they want to do. I think the players deserve a lot of credit for the balance because, you know, they're getting asked questions about playoff basketball, which are often a lot more uh, deep and intense. And I think they've done a good job <clears throat> overall, not just the Pacers, but league wide with what I've been watching of doing that. But you see even something like Doc Rivers last night where they're also able to get, um, you know, this important messaging across and, and use the platform in a way they can for good. And I completely agree with you. I don't think there's been any aspect so far that would not have checked like a 10 out of 10 on the box of what you wanted with a restart. And I think that's been, um, you know, it's, it's a testament to so many people. We talked about it on this podcast, but, you know, uh, I, I think about, for example, a Chrissy Myers and a Celeste Ballou. And look, the reality is the whole team is down there. They're away from their families and they're away from their friends. Um, their significant others, Justin Holiday, a brand new kid and a couple of kids. Um, but, you know, for a, to be down there for seven weeks is, um, you know, it, it's unlike any other trip. You know this, obviously, you're normally traveling. Like, a little over a week is, is a long trip. And this <laughs> exactly. was seven weeks. <laughs> and, yeah. and I remember just keeping in touch with Celeste. And we had her on the podcast. She was on Pacers Weekly a couple of times. I mean, this took, in a lot of ways, a Herculean effort from a lot of people to pull off. And I just am, you know, so impressed by what everybody was able to do. And in a lot of ways, I felt like, um, you know, it was it was hard to fully do your part not being there. Um, but at the same point, I think it came across hopefully on radio and TV. And, and, you know, we haven't even discussed the incredible effort to get, you know, TV and radio studios uh, built more or less from scratch to broadcast in ways that we never have before. Uh, there was even a day where I was leaving you know, game number one, which was obviously very difficult to go do a fever game at a different studio. And we had a, a Pacers TV, Pacers radio and fever broadcast happening all at the same time in which none of us were at location of the game that happened. I mean, it was, um, you know, just truly a Herculean effort by so many people even to pull off. And I think that's part of, you know, why it's it's a little um, crushing to be over because it was so awe inspiring, I think, and, and so exciting to get to be back and to be a part of this and look I know I speak for you I know I speak for everybody we hope that the way that we did business in this restart is is not something that we have to do again but at the same point considering the circumstances it was um, truly really impressive and I and I think um, you know the regular season brought such an excitement back it was you know so uh, enjoyable I feel like to have Pacers Twitter back and and you know the the whole jimmy butler back and forth unfortunately it didn't go the way anybody um hoped and as i look at this series a little bit closer you know i just can't help but feeling like to me it just kind of felt like a frustrating game of whack-a-mole there were so many different aspects going into the series where I, you and i previewed it eddie gill previewed it on tv he previewed it on radio um there were different aspects of the series where you kind of felt like you had to do this well or you had to control this guy. And what was frustrating to me is, is there weren't consistent themes other than the Pacers were close. They were hanging around. They had their chances. But they were never seriously able to get over that hump in any of these games. And, and the one that stands out the most to me, we went into the series going, uh, you know, the Pacers have to be able to do much better on the glass. Even in that 6-2 and two stretch 
in the final eight games of the restart, the Pacers were not good on the glass. They're missing DeMontis Sabonis. We talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, I think I think not only the rebounding, but uh, Domas's screen setting, his passing, his rolling was so, so sorely missed. Um, and, and I think maybe you get an even better appreciation for DeMontis Sabonis, and that's hard to say because I think everybody, you know, in the fan base loves Domas, and he's such a hard worker, and he does so many things well. But I think the little things that he does – Maybe you appreciate even more. But, you know, going into this series, I, I think the thing I was perhaps the most concerned about was the glass where the Pacers had really struggled, even in a lot of their wins in the restart. Miami's a good rebounding team. And you look at these first couple of games, the Pacers outrebounded the Heat in game one. Uh, they were right there with them. They were minus three in game two. Uh, game three was, uh, you know, they were minus nine on the glass. But especially those first two games, if you would have told me that, I would have thought, wow, you're at least getting a split because I thought that was the most important category, significant category. Um, and, you know, that unfortunately just didn't happen. And then as other areas, you started to sure up a little bit more, those different areas kind of popped up and were red flags and were problematic. And it seemed like, you know, no matter what area you covered, a new problem kind of arose and led to game three was maybe the most different feeling of the four but it kind of led to just like a similar feeling in that you never felt out of it. You always felt like the Pacers, you know, could put together uh, even at times a small run, which would not just put them in front, but, you know, could give them the game. And it just never happened. And they just weren't able to string together enough possessions. They had, I thought, a lot of quality moments in the playoffs, but they just weren't long enough. Um, they weren't, you know, as extended stretches of, of positive play as you'd like. And then, um, you know, for Miami, you weren't able to keep their extended stretches from um, being as long as they were. And, um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, that series to me kind of felt like watching four different episodes of the same show. And it was so frustrating because it, these games were close for the most part. Uh, it wasn't like you were getting blown out. And the one game where it felt like you were getting blown out, you got it down to two in the fourth quarter. Yet for what I felt like were different reasons each game, you were never able to get over that hump. With every day that passes, I think fans are less interested in reliving what happened. So I don't know that we were going to spend, you know, all of this podcast looking back. But as you went into your thoughts on the series, immediately some of mine started to come to mind. And I remember Pacers Weekly uh, before the series started, you asking me what I thought the keys were. And even other some other radio interviews got the same question. And I think there were three things that I thought of that I thought would be important. One was not getting destroyed in the free throw disparity department. The other was the three-point shooting, not letting Miami just, you know, go unconscious from outside the arc. And then the other was rebounding. And if you think about it, I almost think the series true. They lost game four. Uh, but in the first three games, when you're down 3-0, we know where, where you're at and the chances you have of, of winning a series. But uh, of the four games – Basically, there was one of those each game that really got them. And maybe another game, it was a, a combination of them. Um, I think game one was one where rebounding, you looked at the numbers and, and wasn't as bad, but you looked at the second chance points and it was bad. So there were times that Miami wasn't really focusing on crashing the offensive glass because they wanted to get back in transition defense. And so I'm not sure you did a good job rebounding as much as Miami didn't try as hard to get the offensive rebounds and then when they did try in the fourth quarter in crucial possessions 
they were they were tough to stop and then we saw that you know kind of come to a head there in that possession in the fourth quarter uh the fourth chance opportunity uh in game four that basically ended the series and so it was like okay they they did okay on the rebounding especially i thought game two and three uh the free throw disparity was unbelievable in game three the three-point shooting in game two they had 18 threes so Miami had some has some things that they do really well, and in each game they did one thing really well, and that was enough because the Pacers didn't do any of what they do well um, to match. And then one thing I just started thinking about, and I was just curious as you were talking, so I went back and double-checked the box scores. Think about when the Pacers were having success in the regular season. How many times did we look down and it was right around 30 assists, and it was one of the magic numbers from Bill Baino. And when the season started and they started 0-3, they weren't getting that. And that was kind of a big red flag. And it was something that needed to change. In the four games, I believe it was 20, 22, 23, and 25 assists. A lot of isolation basketball. There weren't the passes. And a lot of that can be attributed to DeMontis Sabonis. I mean, he pretty much walks on the court and can get you five or six assists, which is incredible for a big man. But they just had to almost reinvent themselves without the bonus. I thought they maybe did it because of what I saw in the seeding games. And so I was pleasantly surprised, borderline shocked at times at how well they played without the bonus in those seeding games and, and the Philadelphia and the Houston and the Laker games are all you need to look at and say, all right, they've got a shot to beat anybody because they're playing, a, they, they're playing a different brand of basketball and they're playing a winning brand of basketball. But I don't know what is going on here with this group, I should say, in the playoffs that – why are they a, a good regular season team and why are they struggling in the postseason? Because, you know, it's now three times in four years with three different teams, all of which you could say going into a series, probably the team the Pacers were playing were favored, right? Was anybody picking the Pacers to beat uh, LeBron James in the 2-7 game? Not really. Um, and then, you know, there was the seven-game series in the 4-5. Was anybody picking the Pacers to beat the Celtics? Maybe a couple people last year, but I think that was more because they were thinking the Celtics had, had mailed it in and thought they were done than people giving the Pacers a lot of credit because they didn't have Oladipo. I mean, let's, let's be honest. And then in this series, we documented it. 17 ESPN experts pulled. All 17 picked the Heat. I guess they were right. <laughs> I mean, that's well, what's so unfortunate is you want to prove these people wrong. And at some point it's going to happen, but it just, it's kind of demoralizing a little bit. I think, yeah, yeah. I think that is the great, um, you know, back and forth that every Pacers fan's probably going through. I know it's one that I certainly have gone through. And I think, you know, you could make a case if you look at the Pacers last three regular seasons, body of work, uh, that no team has been more impressive considering the circumstances. Where did everyone think the Pacers were finishing the year after they traded Paul George? Like 10th, 11th, 12th, somewhere in that area, some even lower. Uh, not only did they make the playoffs, they took LeBron James to Game 7 and a tight Game 7 in Cleveland. The following year, you lose Victor Oladipo early in the season. The revelation that was the biggest reason you even got <laughs> to the playoffs in 17-18 and, and were as good as you were. And yet you finished with the same record. 
as you did the year before, which is remarkable. And then you look at this season, and not only do you not have Victor for most of it, you never have a fully 100% Oladipo, including the playoffs. Uh, you know, uh, you have DeMontis Sabonis missing the restart, but you have Miles Turner missed a handful of games. Malcolm Brogdon missed close to 20 games. Jeremy Lamb torn ACL out for the season. You had so many injuries this year that went beyond Oladipo, and yet you finished with a win percentage even better than those previous two years. And I, I guess I just keep going to the word frustrating because the what what you did for seven plus months, you know, kind of feels like it was overshadowed. And I understand the playoffs are what really matters, and um, you know, ultimately that's you know when the regular you, you're supposed to prove the regular season correct or incorrect. The Pacers have had remarkable challenges in that regard because they haven't had their players. I mean, you look at those series you're talking about, and at least off the top of my head, I can't think of really any significant injury for any of those four teams over the course of any of those series. Uh, Jimmy Butler missed a quarter of game four, uh, and yet the Pacers were dealing, you know, especially within these last two years, last year without Victor Oladipo which is such a remarkable loss. And then this year, you've got Victor at, I don't know, he's never put a number with it, but what you would probably say is 75 to 80%, in my opinion, Oladipo. And then you don't have Sabonis, who's your all-star. And, you know, those things are just so hard to overcome. And it's hard to look at any of those scenarios where you say the Pacers are some combination of slight to more significant underdogs anyway, and then add in the fact that you don't have, your best player, your set, arguably maybe second best player, um, you know, is not 100% right now. You know, however, however you want to frame up that, it's it's just so difficult of a challenge to get over. And I know you, you players don't use injuries as an excuse. Coaches don't use injuries as an excuse. And you can only play with what you're out there. But I guess, you know, it just kind of goes back to some of my thoughts at the beginning of this podcast, which were I really felt that from Slick Leonard for the first time when we were talking to him in game number four, which was you could really feel the empathy that Slick had for Nate and the coaching staff. And and he wasn't, you know, saying that being down 3-0 was an okay result. He wasn't saying by any means the sweep last year was a good result. But you play for seven months with the six months with the hope of, you know, being able to do something in that playoff stretch and each time the last two years the Pacers have gotten to the playoffs they've been missing one of if not the biggest key to what got them that success in the first place and you know you don't ever feel like getting swept is a good result Um, but at the same point this has just been such a frustrating um, you know occurrence because now we've seen it a couple of times and it just when you don't have these guys it feels like you're always running uphill it feels kind of like you're doing a race next to somebody and you know you're going up a slight hill and they're running on flat ground and you can stay paid you can you know you can keep pace with them you maybe even have bursts where you can run faster than them but it's hard over the course of a series when you're constantly the one running on an incline and they aren't um you know to run faster than them and that's you know kind of the push and pull of all of this you know, is is a sweep a result that any of the players or coaches will find satisfactory? No. I mean, I think even if, you know, you're the 8-1, you want to get a game in there. So it's definitely frustrating to be in the 4-5 and not get a game, even without Sabonis, because you feel like you've got a team that's well-rounded enough to at least make the series competitive. 
But just from a bigger picture standpoint, um, you know, how frustrating has this been to have the seasons that you've had and then especially the last two years not have the um, people in place, all of the different pieces in place that got you to there in the first uh, in the first place. It's it's just it's it's frustrating to see happen in the last couple of seasons. And, um, you know, ultimately you go into this offseason with for the first time, I think, a group where you know what you've got in general, you know what your core is and you're happy with it. But none of it matters if, if you know, they aren't fully healthy when the games get most important. Yeah, my final thought that kind of piggybacks on what you said is is the conversation that I had uh, an interview with Dan Burke before the series started. And almost word for word, what you said Slick was saying prior to game four, he was saying before the series, but not in a, you know, I'm so disappointed or I feel bad for anyone. It was just, I want this so bad because of, and you know, they, it's not like the coaching staffs on Twitter and they don't hear everything, but they feel it. And they don't feel any better about getting swept in consecutive years than anyone else does. And, you know, I, I think that the injuries are tough, but it was also a thought that this is a group you, you, you go back in history and even the Pacers history, and, and I know Mark Monteith always talks about this, about groups taking steps in the playoffs. And, you know, you, you have to win a series before you can win two usually. And then you get to the conference finals, and then maybe eventually you knock on the door. And the, and the Pacers of Reggie Miller were able to do that in 2000. And I think that so bad, I, I'm not sure if you gave them – um, you know, a lie detector test and you said, you know, what are your thoughts in a in a series without Sabonis going against the Milwaukee Bucks if they're fully healthy? What do you think? Uh, I'm not I think everyone would say, you know, that's going to be tough. But I think they all thought, you know, it's right there for the taking, even without Sabonis, even with Victor Oladipo at 75 percent. You know, we can beat the Heat. Unfortunately, they proved they they're just not at that level right now or they just had a bad week. You whatever the reason is. And I think that is just so disappointing. And that's what's going to make this offseason, you know, it's already going to be a long offseason. We don't know when basketball will return. And I feel like that the front office is really lumping this season and next season into one, not just because of uh, the pandemic and the uncertainty, but because of the contract situations. But then as much as you're thinking, you know, let's judge this group by two seasons together, not just one, is this four-game sweep enough to say, well, hold on a second. Maybe there are changes that need to be made in, in the structure because of what happened. And that's a question I can't answer, but I can guarantee you it's one that, you know, the front office is thinking about. And even the coaching staff has to be thinking about as well. Where where can we make changes so this doesn't happen again? We don't want to feel this way again. And and to be quite honest, you can't. I mean, you're not in the business to, to get to the playoffs every year but losing the first round. You're in the business to show some progress and to make – you know, to, to experience success in in the postseason. So um, I think we said enough about that series. I don't know that anybody needs to relive it anymore, except to learn some lessons from it. And I think that um, you can, if you're listening to this and you're frustrated still and you think you're doomed to just watching this team do the same thing, I can tell you that they will be doing everything in their power to make changes. And I do want to see them go at it with, you know, everybody that they have available. Uh, our pick three, we haven't had a pick three in a while, but I thought it might be fun to just kind of bounce around a little bit. Uh, this this Pacer Sound podcast 
is obviously a Pacers podcast, and we don't necessarily root for or against other teams. Uh, you root for the league to have high ratings and close games, I think. Um, but I think it's okay. We can we can pick our pick three teams we're going to root for uh, from this point on. What do you think, Pat? I think that's fair. You know, uh, kind of harkening back to a conversation we were having earlier. Just having the NBA back, I know it's so odd here in late August to be talking anything on the court, and you and I are normally, um, you know, thinking draft and free agency at this time as it <laughs> relates to the podcast. So, um, you know, if there is a silver lining, we do have playoff basketball at a time that we normally don't. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think we've seen some remarkable moments. I think you've seen some trends in the bubble. I think scoring in general um, has gone up, I think evidenced by the 100 <laughs> And 54 points the Clippers put up on Tuesday. We saw a phenomenal game in that series in game number four, where Doncic more or less kept Dallas alive with what is probably the moment of the playoffs in the bubble so far. So, um, you know, I will certainly be watching. I'm excited to still have playoff basketball around here for um, what I guess would be when you go through the finals about a month and a half still remaining. So you don't have to give a reason. Just pick your team you're rooting for, whether they have a great chance or not. This is not a prediction. Pick three. But we're each going to pick three. And and, and you can uh, copy mine. But uh, the first team that I'm going to be rooting for, the Milwaukee Bucks. Only because of who they're playing. I don't think much else needs to be said. I'm not <laughs> normally a, a fan of, of the, the number one seed in any situation. Haven't been a, a huge uh, raw, raw guy for the Central Division rivals, but um, I'm a big Bucks fan in round two, and we'll leave it at that. That's a that's a fair selection. You know, I think um, <laughs> the way that their year went last year, I think they're certainly looking um, for larger scale revenge. It was kind of funny. And I, and I like George Hill. Yeah, yeah, you've got George Hill over there, um, and, and you know, they it was interesting to see Orlando win Game One of that series like they did against Toronto in uh, game one last year. And everybody started wondering, oh, no, you know, is perhaps the favorite in major trouble. And then, of course, uh, they've rebounded and, and proven that very wrong. Um, you know, this is this is tough for me because I don't think any teams really jump out. And uh, like, like <laughs> yeah. they would. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to be like, yeah, I really want that team to win. Right? We all have these personal when they beat you or when you have a bad experience. I don't like that team, you know? <laughs> I'm looking out west, and I really wish um, that Boyan Bogdanovich was still part of the Jazz. Um, you know, it was you know, frustrating that he didn't end up staying here, but I think you agree that, you know, Boyan turned into – you talk about a rags-to-riches type of story. You know, he came over – and it was like, why would this guy ever be starting in the NBA? And he came here and was pretty quiet. And, and you didn't ever feel like you're ever going to get to really know him. And then um, in his second season, he blossomed into a star. Uh, you know, maybe even uh, the playoffs the year before he blossomed into a star. And I think became one of your and my favorite guys around the locker room. So it's frustrating not to have him. Um, I like watching Utah, though. Um, you know, I'm a fan of, of Donovan Mitchell and the way that he plays. And I thought that game on Tuesday was remarkable. Denver took it. Uh, so I, I tend to look Western Conference with all of this, and maybe you do too, big picture, besides the fact that, um, you know, Milwaukee is, is playing Miami here in round number two very likely. But uh, let me go Utah with my selection. It's a solid pick, and it's one 
Um, I go back and forth a little bit on my thoughts on Utah. If Boyan was playing in the series, then I would have made them one of my three. Although I will say one of my other uh, favorite pacers of the last few years is George Niang. And to see him playing crunch time minutes for the Jazz in that game uh, last night, I was pretty happy for George. And I also uh, know someone that works on, on the uh, strength and conditioning side for the Jazz. So, I would normally be picking the Jazz, but I'm going to stay away. But I am going to stay in the West. And, you know, this is surprising a little bit because I don't always enjoy the style with which they do things. But I'm going to go with the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Again, maybe this is just because of who they're playing right now. (laughs) It's almost like I'm making picks because I want someone (laughs) they're playing to be eliminated. Um, and, and I don't love the fact that Luca, early in his career, is kind of starting to to develop a little bit of Kyle Lowry and and uh, some others of just kind of complaining about calls all the time. So I wish he would stop that, but I still respect what he's been able to do at such a young age. And I know they have it up against them right now, trailing three two. If Porzingis doesn't play, there's no reason why they should be able to win that series. So they are to me the ultimate under, underdog at this point. And if they could win game six and seven, what a story that would be for so many reasons. So I'm going to go with the Mavericks for my second choice. All right. So my second choice, I'm going to go with the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think it's been a remarkable, remarkable story there. Um, You know, I I think they to get to 44 and 28 based on what they were dealing with. In a lot of ways, it reminds me very different players here. But in a lot of ways, it reminds me of that 17-18 Pacers season in which, you know, teams felt uh, people felt like the Pacers were gutted losing Paul George. And in this case, again, losing Paul George. Um, but then also Russell Westbrook. You brought in Chris Paul, who at the time, I think, had, um, you know, the feeling around the NBA of this guy is well beyond his best days. And it was just kind of this. It, you just had to take a bad contract back to get Russell Westbrook out of the way. Would he even care? Would he even play? I think most people didn't even think, um, you know, that he would end up playing for Oklahoma City, that he'd be traded. And lo and behold, they went 44 and 28, you know, um, and, and got in the four or five matchup. They got down to Houston 2-0. I'm a big Shea Gilgis Alexander fan. I really like him. And I think when you look at that trade, the picks are what stand out to everybody. But I think Shea Gilgis Alexander may end up being the best player that they get back. And I mean that in a, in a very positive way because I think he's going to turn into, um, you know, perhaps even a star in this league. And they got down 2 0 to Houston. And I'm not, you know, you go back and forth on Houston. I'm not a hater of their style. It's obviously not my favorite, but I'm not one of those people that, you know, can't stand Houston because, frankly, I think it's interesting when teams try different things and, uh, you know, try to buck trends and stuff like that. I guess they're maybe not bucking a trend, rather just trying to go to the extreme with the trend that we're seeing with playing so little, um, you know, bigs and essentially playing that small. But um, I, I've just been uh, really impressed with what the Thunder have done all season long. And to get down 2-0 in that series and tie it up 2-2 has been a fun story. And I know Chris Paul obviously has name recognition. Um, this is a, a team in one of the smallest markets in the NBA that doesn't really have massive star power. And, you know, to see them fighting at this level, I think, has been impressive. And I will be, uh, I think, tuned in a little bit more closely to their games. I think that's uh, someone that, when I thought of this as an idea, I was going to include Oklahoma City, and then I kind of thought back and, and made a little bit of a switch in, in adding the Mavericks there instead. So I agree with you. I think Oklahoma City feels a little bit like the Pacers. They've also had 
um, you know, they've struggled in the first round in recent years. So there are a lot of similarities between the two franchises. I think as they are currently constructed, it's easy to root for Oklahoma City. Billy Donovan is one of the most, um, you know, his pregame media availabilities sometimes go 10 to 15 minutes in length. And that's just, I, I actually respect that out of Billy Donovan. So um, I like them as an honorable mention, but I'm going to go back to this and say that, you know, there are two coaches in the league that are probably my favorite, um, not coaching the Pacers at the moment. And they would be Frank Vogel and Brad Stevens and mostly for personal reasons, obviously. And so then if I'm going to make one more pick, I think I would have to pull for one of those two gentlemen. And it would actually be kind of interesting and fun if it was a Celtics, if we saw a Celtics Lakers final, but I can't get past the fact that I'm probably not going to be in the position to uh, get my purple and uh, gold pom-poms out and, and cheer for LeBron James. Uh, the wounds are still fresh enough over the years. And uh, the Celtics last year, when you play a playoff series, that was the one thing I didn't really want to see a Pacers Celtics series, because if, if that ended poorly again, I would maybe start to just, you know, really not dislike Brad, but you know, ugh, you know, Boston. And so uh, I'm a, I'm going to pick the Celtics right now. If there's one team remaining that, you know, has a chance and I'll be rooting for, it's probably the Celtics. And and my Bucks pick is only for the next round. I, I I'm not rooting for them. <laughs> it has an expiration date. <laughs> exactly. I'll be rooting for them until the middle of September, and then no matter what happens, I'll probably not be rooting for them. Although I don't know what I would say in a Bucks Raptors. I'd, I'd probably. Um, I'm not. I don't know that I would have a favorite there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna pull for Brad. I'm gonna pull for the Celtics. Gordon Hayward. Hope he can get healthy. Um, be able to see the birth of his child and and get back. Although that seems to be tough considering the ankle injury that he has. Um, and uh, assistant coach Jamie Young from Logan Sport, um, respect for him as well. So there are enough reasons to make the Celtics my choice. That's how I'll finish my pick three. All right, I'll, I'll close like this, and I'm going to go um, with a pick that maybe you're not expecting. And, and I want to say that these are not necessarily in order. They're just sort of as we have kind of been going, and I've been looking down at the playoff chart. <laughs> um, but I, I will say after, you know, I'm not a believer that Houston can go far. Um, I, I just think – you know, you have to be able to at least be competitive on the boards to win us to, uh, you know, go deep into the playoffs. And and as much as I am really impressed with Oklahoma City, I don't think they can either. I think the Jazz were potentially dealt a fatal blow to their chances in terms of making a really deep run uh, when Boyan was not able to continue it with the restart. And I think, you know, I, I'm still watching Denver closely because I, I think there's potentially something there, but it really doesn't seem like it's all clicked yet. And um, I'm not sure they're quite ready to make that run. So as I go through all of those comments, I'm going to pick the Clippers because I am a fan of as these playoffs go on, especially as you get into the conference finals. I, I think the NBA is at a completely different level in terms of excitement and viewership when these series are you know, going six and seven games on both ends. And you've got four teams that you know, stand out and say, I think any of these four could win a championship. And I think if it were the perhaps the Lakers and the Clippers on one end, and if it was Milwaukee and either Boston or Toronto on the other end, I honestly think I would say that. Um, and, and I think it's the first time in a while we could say that from an NBA perspective. And so just from a health of the league standpoint and an enjoyment of the playoff standpoint, um, you know, I, I, I don't really want to see LeBron's Lakers do what 
you know, a lot of LeBron's Cavs were able to do uh, or LeBron's Heat were able to do. Really, besides, you take the Pacers out of the equation, it, it's it, not to go down too deep of a rabbit hole here. But when you go back and look at LeBron from 2011 to before he went to the Western Conference, um, if you take the Pacers out of the equation, there really was very little to no uh, resistance <laughs> for him. And so that's the only thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see them, you know, plow their way to the finals. And um, while I think they are the favorite, I think um, if, if, you know, the Clippers were to play well and, you know, I, I like Kawhi Leonard and I think, um, you know, he is such a fascinating matchup for LeBron that I will pick the Clippers because I, I think if you had a final four that included um, four of those five teams that I said, it would be really good for the NBA and the general interest in the health of the league as we get, you know, down to the nitty gritty in the playoffs. Yeah, I think uh, I had a feeling that's where you're going to go with that. And I can't argue with that thought. You know, the underdog in me doesn't want the seeds to prevail. But this might be one year where I think I would be okay with it because I also was tired in, you know, May and, and June of hearing all the talk about, will, will there be an asterisk next to this champion? And that was the only thing that I kind of thought about is like, if it's just a crazy result or an Un, not an unpopular, but one that is hard to predict, then I don't think the team will get the credit it deserves. And so we've yeah. seen, you know, form has kind of is holding right now. And we're seeing the, the teams that were really good show their strength in the playoffs. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's the old argument, um, though, from the NCAA tournament. You know, we love the upsets. But then if it's, you know, a, a 12 seed in the, uh, in the Sweet 16, the ratings are not usually that good. And so I, I do root for the health of the league. I think they um, deserve to have a bump. I think people have been criticizing them for the ratings, which there are so many factors in play here. Um, I, I can see your viewpoint there. And if it was the Lakers Clippers, as much as I would um, kind of be a little nauseous by some of the, <laughs> the coverage and the talk, it would get good ratings and that's good for everybody. So uh, I can, I can get behind that one a little bit. <laughs> you know, as you were making those points, and, and we don't have time to go down this rabbit hole either, but obviously, as you say stuff, things pop in my head, and I'm sure vice versa. I think I, I think I drastically underestimated the fact of, I looked at this restart. You and I talked about it, um, and it's still, I, th I think it's too early to draw this conclusion, but at least so far, what I'm seeing is this. I think I expected home court advantage to go away and for that to drop the ceiling and, and raise the floor. And maybe it has, maybe it has, and maybe it just hasn't happened significantly. And ultimately, um, you know, it's a little harder for teams like Milwaukee, but not so hard that they're not going to get past Orlando. We'll see. But what I, what I've kind of started to perhaps realize a little bit is it's maybe a bigger advantage for teams like Milwaukee to not have to go on the road than it is a disadvantage to lose their home games. I don't know if you're following my line of thought, yeah. but um, you know, if you if you go one one in those first two games and you're the favorite and you got to go on the road for two games, that's pretty daunting because you know you've got to at least get one on their home court or you're in some deep trouble. And if you're looking at a one one series in this scenario where the favorite, you're going okay. I'd like to be up two nothing, but there's nothing really daunting, you know, in front of us. Even if we lose it, we go down two one. It's not like we have to play game four on the road. And I almost wonder if not having to go on the road is a greater advantage to a better team than losing their home game. Yeah. And uh, the, the counter to that would be when you are 
the team, the lower seeded team, sometimes you think you have to win twice on the opponent's home court because it's, it's almost unrealistic to expect you'll just automatically win all of your home games. But I, I didn't bring that up because I think fans would, would treat that as an excuse, but I would have appreciated seeing Bankers Life Fieldhouse, you know, fired up for this Miami Indiana series and to see yeah. if that could have been the boost that this team maybe just needed to get over the hump in one of those games. And then I do think if the Pacers win one game, whether it's one, two, or three, it's a different series. So um, I completely understand that and agree with that. And and the fact that the the favorite doesn't have to go play a road game, maybe it does help the favorites more than the underdogs. Yeah, and, and you know, I think if you looked at what the series might have been if, if it were in a normal environment, first and foremost, I think it's, it's maybe unfair to say the Pacers would have been the four seed because – um, you know, Miami and Indiana, for, for that matter, didn't really play in that final regular season game. And that was really only when the Pacers caught and passed Miami. But even if you go down, as you were making the case, two games to zero uh, in the series, you're coming back to Indianapolis for game number three. And, you know, you get that game and then it's 2-1 and you got a home court game to tie the series and you get it to 2-2 and you're pretty much guaranteed uh, a long series, you are guaranteed a long series, and you're also guaranteed when you get to 2-2 to at least have a shot to force a Game 7 at some point. And so I, I think that, you know, perhaps the better teams in some ways are advantaged, uh, maybe even more. I, it, it's it's My theory's gone back and forth on this, but I'll be interested to watch it. I think as I've watched the NBA unfold, it's been, um, there's been a lot less of this wild card factor of playing in the bubble. And I think in the WNBA too, I was just looking at the standings last night, and thinking, you know, if you would have flashed this in front of me before the season and then just said, here's where you are for the WNBA, the 14 or so games in of 22. So almost two thirds of the way through the WNBA season. If you would have flashed that in front of me before the year, I don't think I would have really batted an eye at anything. I think everything looks about what you'd expect over there, too. And I don't think there's been anything overly shocking uh, in the NBA yet. So, you know, maybe we uh, overplayed that a little bit in terms of you know what that might mean I think ultimately it's a it's a good example of good basketball probably wins but I also think it's still too early I think you know um, if, if Miami starts to give Milwaukee a lot of troubles then I, I think you walk back <laughs> a lot of those thoughts too um, but I, I've been interested to watch it so far and, and really how um, that's not made a, a I guess a massive difference uh, maybe the, the big difference that we thought it would um, let's wrap up this podcast. Let, let's briefly look forward. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts just as you look at the Pacers, you look at where they stand. You know, this is maybe an odd offseason. We, we talked about this, I think, with Chad Buchanan on a Pacers weekly interview we did. It's odd in that, look, we don't know what's going to happen. You and I are not trade prognosticators. We do not create them. Um, we do not know if any will happen, if there's going to be a big trade, if there's going to be a small trade, if there's going to be no trades. But it is an odd offseason in the fact that and, and, I, and I say this positively, you've got your core locked up. Um, you like your core. The, you use the first-round draft pick to get Malcolm, so you don't have a first-round draft pick. Um, in terms of the, like, draft and free agency period, we'll see. You know, you can always trade your way into things, and, and all of a sudden things that don't look interesting, all that interesting, like draft nights, could become very interesting. Um, but at least in terms of movement, the Pacers, I think for the first time in a while, you know, maybe 17, 18, going into 18, 19, they were um, pretty locked in. But I'm not sure we knew that at the time. Um, they, they've got their core locked in and, you know, without a high draft pick for the first time in a while. 
it will be really interesting to see and hear, you know, what some of the um, front office takes are. I, I look forward to, you know, at some point, if Kevin Pritchard has an end of season press conference, he usually does. It'll probably be via Zoom, but maybe we could have another podcast kind of discussing that a little bit because I do think they have options. I do think it's going to be one of these off seasons where, um, you know, not as many moves. I, I think maybe more people will take the approach of lumping these two seasons together into one and, and, and reevaluating, you know, in the summer of 2021 or the fall or whatever that next season is. I mean, there are just so many uncertainties. But with that being said, I don't think that it's a throwaway year. It's not just, okay, well, they're going to be satisfied by doing the same thing. If there's a tweak or there's a move to be made, they will make it. And there are some um, specific decisions that will need to be made that we don't need to bring up. Everybody knows, you know, will, what will the decision be with, you know, the big lineup and what will, what discussions will be had with Victor Oladipo and what does Victor Oladipo feel about Indiana? You know what, Pat, we don't, <laughs> I know much less now than I ever have about this team because I haven't been around them. I mean, I haven't watched this team practice or been in the same room with a coach or player since the middle of March. So for everyone that's going to ask me in the next, you know, couple months, what I think is going to happen. I hate to say it, but your guess is as good as mine. And to be honest, I don't need to know. I'm not on a need to know basis for something like this, but trust me, there are those people that that's their job. They're on top of it. So um, I think you just have to trust them to make the best decisions possible. Will every decision they make this off season be perfect? Probably not. I don't think any front office um, can say that that usually happens. But if they can come close to matching what they did last offseason, uh, I think you'll be okay with it because they signed DeMontis Savonis to an extension. They brought in Justin Holiday, TJ McConnell, Malcolm Brogdon, Jakar Sampson, Jeremy Lamb, all of which were really good contributors for this team. Did I leave anybody out in the in – the oh, TJ Warren. They, they took him for cash consideration. So I don't know that you could have a better offseason – than you had last offseason. Now it's the goal to take what you did in the summer of 2019 and and make it make this roster even better. So I mean, that, those are my initial thoughts. Do you have anything different on that? No, I think I'm generally along the same plane as you. And look, when you go into an NBA offseason, especially as you know exemplified by the last few offseasons, not even with the Pacers, but just around the NBA, the unknown is always fairly high. Um, but you know, I, I know. The playoff result is frustrating, but I look at this team with at least everything that we know. You can start to, you know, create different scenarios and theories, and there are questions that are going to have to be answered. But at least what we know is the Pacers have, you know, their core locked down for next year. And as frustrating as that playoff series is, if I would have told you, you know, a year ago, two years ago, that the Pacers would be in a position where at least the guys that they have under contract, if they want to keep them there, are Malcolm Brogdon, who played when he was healthy, mostly like an all-star this year, at minimum borderline all-star. Um, you know, had, I think, a pretty good playoff series, although game four wasn't his best. He was fantastic in game number three. I think you like that direction. You know, Victor Oladipo is a guy that you brought in and, and now is viewed at a completely different level. He's been an all-star for you two times, and you've got him under contract, you know, for next season at minimum. Uh, T.J. Warren came in and was your leading scorer this year um, and, and maybe the most understated leading scorer in the NBA because of the way he goes about his business. And not just that, but we saw flashes in the bubble of a guy that 
you know, maybe has a higher ceiling than we thought. You know, I, I think Warren was one of those guys you went into uh, all of this thinking you probably know what you've got, and then maybe he showed something else. DeMontis Sabonis has been um, just a revelation since he's come to Indy. He was a throw-in portion of a trade for some people's standpoint. I know that wasn't what the Pacers thought when this trade happened a couple of years ago. And he's not only gone um, from that guy along with Victor Oladipo, um, but he's established himself into a regular NBA rotation guy, to a starter, to an all-star in this league. And then you've got Miles Turner, who, um, you know, I think completed his best playoff series. I know it's, you can debate on when that comes in a sweep, the significance of it, but I thought we saw some positive steps from Miles. He averaged, he led the, he led the series in rebounding, um, averaged 16 points and shot over 50% from the field, over 40% from three. You've also hopefully got Jeremy Lamb coming back. And I, I think maybe that's the one aspect that doesn't get talked enough of is, is that Pacers second unit was struggling in a typical world. You'd have Jeremy Lamb in there. I say all that to say, I know it was a frustrating series. I know it's been a frustrating last couple of playoffs. And I know it maybe is even more frustrating when you have these good regular seasons and, and there's a, a lot of, for good reason, hope that you can make some noise in the playoffs and that hasn't happened. And injuries, unfortunately, I think are a major reason for that. But I look at where this team is right now. The unknown with every team in the NBA is almost always high. And you don't know where the paces are going to be the next time that we take the floor. But the known information that we can go on right now, I think you look at where the Pacers stand, and I think there's plenty of reason for optimism. And I think if they can just get healthy and if they can gel together, um, you know, I, I think I think there's a core in place to do something really special. And they've got to prove it and they've got to stay healthy first and foremost to get there. But I think when you look at each of these different, um, you know, players and, for lack of a better term, pieces individually – and what they could be, um, you know, I think they're as talented from a depth perspective as the Pacers have been in a very long time. And now, you know, it's up to if this is the group that takes the floor next year, um, their jobs ultimately to uh, grow that chemistry and then ultimately to perform at the level that I think, um, you know, that they're capable of, which personally I think is really, really high. And as you hit in, as you head into the offseason, I think if you're looking for, um, you know, a, a piece of optimism. It's just look at, take away the playoff series, look at where the Pacers are from a roster standpoint. And I think not only would that give you a lot of comfort, but um, still a lot of optimism that this team can accomplish um, a lot of impressive things. They just need more than 86 minutes <laughs> on the floor together at the same <laughs> time in a season. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, offer my final thoughts right now. And, you know, it's interesting as I left the field house on Monday, I was, it was a little bit unusual because I, I was thinking back to the previous seasons and so many times in the playoffs last year, game four, I believe was an ABC game. So we only did a, a post game only show. And then I'm um, games, uh, game seven at Cleveland. It was a post game only show. So Chris and Quinn were hosting the post game show from Indianapolis Game four, I believe, of the Cleveland series was an ABC game Sunday afternoon, so we did not have the broadcast. And then game seven of the Toronto series was also a national TV game where I think at the time maybe it was a TNT game, but I'm not sure we didn't broadcast the game. So um, a little inside baseball here, but until Monday, the last time I had hosted the postgame show on the final day of the season was 
at Memphis. And that was standing <laughs> on the court at FedEx Forum. And I actually remember that pretty vividly because that was another day with so much, you know, anticipation and hope. And then yeah. it just came to an abrupt halt. And so we got ready to do the last segment of Pacers Live postgame on Monday. And I just thought, well, what am I going to say as I sign, you know, as I sign off here? And, you know, it just wanted to thank all of the people that made it possible. And you touched on this earlier, but I think we need to give some shout outs and some kudos. Our VP of broadcasting, Jamie Burns, kind of spearheading everything, but also, you know, Greg Smith and Emily Wright on the engineering side of things at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, just doing a fantastic job. Nobody knows quite what they had to do to pull that off because what we did is not normally done in that building. And they had a pandemic and they had construction that basically left all of the equipment filled with dust for a while. So, uh, you know, we don't need to get into all the details, but it was a yeoman's mm-hmm. effort to make that happen. And then to be able to make it feel like what was broadcast on television and on radio was almost as good as if we were there. And so I think that uh, everyone accomplished that goal. And I know the job is not finished as they will continue to broadcast and you will continue to broadcast the fever, but wanted to just kind of specifically, you know, give shout outs to those people. Um, my pregame producer, Ken Softman did a great job, you know, basically didn't know how it would work, but I felt like the first game against Philadelphia, it was like we had just done, you know, we were, we had never missed a beat and, and Eddie Gill, Maybe I thought did some of his best work in the last month. And I, I know yeah. he did a really good job with you on the radio side of things, but I, I feel, you know, great about having him as a colleague and, and the insight provided and always getting to work with Chris and Quinn and, and actually uh, our fill-in producer, Jason Dizick and what he did um, with Max Linewand, not with us. He uh, went, went to go work for the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but shout out to Max for all of his work over the years. We still might have a podcast with Max at some point getting his thoughts, but I know he's really <laughs> busy right now. So, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out. And that was the thing is I, I wanted to start saying a bunch of people's names, but once you start doing that, you start to leaving someone out. And so <laughs> the general point that I did have outside of those specific people was I was so glad to see some of our crew that worked so hard, that works on a freelance basis and has had their lives turned upside down, has had work taken away from them. And so all of the people that none of you know, but we couldn't do what we do without them. Um, I was glad they were able to work again and we were able to work with them and we could be a team once again. And I was just hoping it could continue into September. Um, it didn't. And uh, the two final thoughts I have are late June, I was getting uh, donuts and coffee um, at a location, which I will not necessarily say, but right behind me in line was Chad Buchanan. And so I did the old, you know, well, uh, what did he order? I'll pay for his. And he just had one donut. So it didn't even cost me that much, <laughs> but I, I bought Chad's donut. And then, you know, as he kind of came back around, we talked briefly, not about anything specific. And I, I think this was late June. It was late June or early July to the point where the plans had been announced, but no one knew if it would work. And he made the comment that day that, you know, if we can pull this off, it'll sure be something. And it wasn't like, if we can pull this off, like, can the Pacers win a championship? It was, can the NBA do this? Can they create the bubble? Can we get back to playing basketball? Can we be safe? And they have. I mean, it's not over yet, but um, it is quite a story to tell. And I'll never forget that game against the Sixers and seeing TJ Warren score 53 points on a day that I didn't even know how the broadcast would work. Um, So uh, the final thought, that was my second to last thought. The final thought is, 
Um, I'm always bummed when a season ends. Like it usually takes me a long time to kind of get over the fact that what we do every day is now over. And now I'm trying to find things to do. And I was a little bit bummed yesterday, but I'm in a pretty good spot right now. And, and I'll share a Dr. Seuss quote. And, uh, you know, it's something that I've thought about because I always have this problem. I've always been the person that when the football season ended, I did not want football to end and to go into basketball. But by the time we got to basketball, man, I wanted to keep playing. I, I didn't want to go play baseball. I wanted to keep playing basketball. And so <laughs> I don't want this job to end. Um, I didn't want the season to end. But as Dr. Seuss would say, don't cry because it ended. Smile because it happened. And I'm happy that it happened in August. And I'm happy that this season happened. And it was, I said it a couple of weeks ago, it was one of the more enjoyable teams to be around. So don't let what happened in the last week make uh, tarnish your image and your feelings about what you saw during the season. Completely agree. Very well said. I share a lot of those thoughts, um, almost all of the thoughts that you just made. And I would just be rambling and repeating um, to say them over and in a slightly different way. But the amount of people and expertise and work and skill that went into getting these broadcasts back on the air and, and the Pacers back onto the court, um, and the dedication, the long hours, the time, um, it's really remarkable. And I look back at our broadcasts, whether it's been uh, Fever, whether it's been Pacers Radio, and while you know I'm not on the, the game broadcast of Pacers TV, you guys were right, just right down the hall. And, um, you know, we were discussing after each and every game. And I think it was amazing that while this scenario is by no means ideal, um, you know, you definitely miss something being there and being able to talk to the players, uh, being able to call the game and use the crowd, um, you know, as, as, as kind of your indicator for, you know, your calls and, and the level of excitement to reach. And all of that's very difficult not being there. That said, as I would go back and watch the TV broadcasts and obviously the radio broadcast being on them, I think it was so impressive how it maybe wasn't the 100% feel you normally got, um, but it was so close. And the fact that we never had any major technical difficulties um, that I know of that, you know, at least, um, you know, would be available or visible or hearable to the fans. I was frankly, I was worried about like the video going out. And then at what point does the <laughs> video go out? And then what do you do? Uh, you know, and we can't we can't do a radio broadcast without the video. And you certainly can't do a TV one without the. I mean, we were so reliant on that video just coming back. Yeah. And it always exactly. did. Um, and, and so, you know, a thank you. Those are skill sets and work that is so far above both of our heads um, in terms of the production elements and all of that um, to make all that come together. Um, and, and I'm just very thankful that it all has. And, you know, kind of a couple of, of final thoughts for me. It's, it's a little bit different in my situation because, you know, we've got the fever still going on. I hope everybody listening will at least, if you haven't yet, give, a, give the fever a view. If, if you haven't tuned into a fever game, maybe since Tamika Catching's played, give this team a chance. Um, they're, you know, probably not in a position to win a championship this year, but they're young. They've been drafting high for a while. They've got a Hall of Fame head coach, and I think it's the perfect time if you are looking to get back, you know, into watching Fever basketball, or if you're just bummed to not have um, an Indiana professional team that you thought um, was playing right now, we've got all of these games over on feverbasketball.com for absolutely nothing, the Fever Facebook page or the app. And if they're not over there, it means it's on national TV where you can get it anyway. The game on Thursday is on ESPN too. So you can catch all of these games. Um, you know, it's, it's an exciting young group to uh, broadcast for. I think they've got a really good chance at making the playoffs this year. 
And, you know, just a couple of days ago, they beat the Seattle Storm, who were 11-1 and one, and have Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird and, and are a remarkable team. So they certainly got some potential. Um, you know, for me, I'm fortunate that we get to keep the fever season going and, and, you know, at least half of the job that I'm doing gets to stay for at least a few more weeks. And we hope that you will join us. And then obviously, I, I know you share these um, exact same sentiments here, JJ, but a thank you to everybody who listened along to the podcast this year. And this is not a goodbye to the podcast. You and I will get with, um, you know, the, the people in digital that make these decisions and we'll decide how much. And obviously, so much of it is predicated on what does the offseason look like and can we feel like we can bring content to you to the offseason. So this is not a goodbye by any means, but, um, you know, as always, this final show is kind of a wrap up, at least for a little while. And I think that will probably be the case, although, you know, we'll see. I know we're both um, certainly willing to keep these going on uh, as much as we feel like we can provide valuable content to you. But we made, you know, it, it's hard to think about things like Fan Jam and realize that that was the beginning of this season because it was so long ago. But we made a really big push this year trying to get this podcast more into the mainstream of, of our Pacers fans. You diehards that have been with us for forever, um, we love you. But we were trying to get you know this just to be a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more of every Pacers fan within their weekly habits. And I think we still have a lot of work to do, but I saw a lot of growth in that regard. And you know um, whether it was when we were available to have basketball in person, people coming up and thanking us for the, the podcast and, and mentioning the podcast. It, it means a lot to have all of you along for the ride because we've said this, JJ, from time to time throughout the five or so years that we've done this, but you and I just kind of started it on a whim. Hey, let's give this a try. It's, you know, a, an outlet where we don't have a time limit on necessarily. And, um, you know, it's amazing to think that I think we're, I think we're concluding year five, season five of this. Um, and wow. we, we certainly we, thank we everybody that's been around We should have sold the Bill Simmons for. or the Ringer at some point, you know? I certainly, it's, it's been a fun ride. It's, you know, one that I hope goes on for a very long time. But at minimum, I think it's important to pause and, you know, thank everybody for listening. Because, frankly, if nobody listened, um, we wouldn't keep doing this. So, um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Thank I, I you to all of our there, fans that have been with us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the first time we started doing it, it did surprise me that as many people would come up and say something. And, you know, now uh, we're kind of like them. I mean, podcasts are kind of part of our life. I think that uh, during the pandemic, when people weren't driving as much, maybe listenership was down a little bit. So any of you that made the extra effort to listen, we we certainly appreciate it. And, you know, what you say and when you when you come up and tell us that you enjoy it that means a lot and so yeah um we wouldn't probably keep doing it if not for that i mean the um you know i think it's something that the, the organization likes having and we like doing it and i see no reason to stop and i do like that the idea was to do it every wednesday sometimes the schedule made it difficult whether it was before or after a tuesday night game or or whatnot but Great job by you always being the one to edit it and post it. And uh, we appreciate the digital crew for pushing it out so we could maybe get a few more listens with their, you know, mega millions of followers on all of their social media accounts. So um, I'm happy to do it. Glad to do it. It's a small part of, uh, you know, what we do, but it's not, it's not insignificant by any means. So um, great job by you all season. And I uh, can't wait to do it again. Maybe not every Wednesday, but you know, it won't be too long until <laughs> we're doing this again. Absolutely. Uh, same sentiments to you as well. Thank you for 
um, you know, making this podcast flow every single week and oftentimes, uh, at least in normal environments, and I hope to be able to bother you on the road again. But it was even more challenging for you. You'd get into a city late at night and, and we're waking up before you had to go to shoot around or perhaps catching us in between shoot around in a game and doing this and, and trying to keep it on a more regular schedule. And um, I, you know, I'm trying I think we all I think we went 100 percent on hitting Wednesdays. I don't know if we ever missed it. So um, that was a that was a um, goal of ours. This maybe year Christmas maybe. week. Did, maybe we did miss one. Yeah. OK, well, maybe we yeah. maybe we shot ninety nine percent from the <laughs> from the foul line. I'll still take it. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I think we did. miss. Yeah. I think we did take one week off. But otherwise, um, you know, it was a fun year and it's not, you know, totally goodbye, but it is probably um, at least a slowdown period for this podcast. But thank you all very much. Um, you know, we have analytics and ratings and ways to track how much this is viewed. And it's certainly, um, you know, gone up every single year. And we certainly appreciate everybody um, who listens to us and, and makes this part of your, uh, you know, weekly routine. We could not be more grateful for all of that. So for the final time, at least in the 2019-2020 season, we'll be talking to you soon. Um, he's Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. We will talk to you soon on the Sideline Guys podcast.